Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord repay you with children by this woman for the gift that she made to the Lord. And then they would return to their home. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. This is the word of the Lord. Today is the twelfth day of Christmas. Today is the beginning of Epiphany. This may seem a very strange text to you for such a day. Why am I not reading about the Magi as Dr. Tankersley did for you? Because last year I did read that story and I did preach from that story. And this year I'm going to be preaching all year from lections appropriate to the day from the Hebrew scriptures. Now, our great scholars from Roman Catholicism and our mainline Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Methodist churches, disciples, our scholars have tried to put together a three-year plan by which we struggle with and deal with the greatest passages in the Bible. To do that, every Sunday you need to deal with one passage from the Hebrew Scriptures, one from the Book of Psalms, one from one of the Gospels, and one from the Epistle section of the Bible. So this year, we're going to be dealing with the Hebrew lection. Why this one? Why did they think this one was appropriate for the 12th day of Christmas, the first day of Epiphany this year? I think probably because Luke in his gospel, the one who told us about, told us about the shepherds who came to see Jesus, says that then Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus home to Nazareth, and the child grew in statue and in favor with God and man. And then Luke gives you a story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not have in their gospel accounts, that when Jesus was a boy, 12 years old, his parents took him to Jerusalem. That would have been about the age of Bar Mitzvah. And when they started home again, they discovered he was not in the group of people walking all that 90 miles back to Nazareth. So they went back into the city to look for him and found him with the elders asking questions, giving answers with the elders. And the boy grew in statue and in favor with God and men. Luke says it twice. So here Luke includes these words used first to describe Samuel, using them twice to describe Jesus. And obviously Luke thinks that Samuel is in that long line of important people who were forerunners of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at the story. Number one. I think to understand this story, you need to go back one chapter and read about all the difficulties that Hannah was having. Hannah was having no children. Her husband was married to two women, to Hannah and one other. The other was having a baby every time she wanted to. And every time the other had another baby, just made life more difficult for Hannah. Because having babies was so important in that ancient world. And year after year, she had no baby Every year, she and her husband would go to the holy place, Shiloh. This was long before Jerusalem, long before Solomon's temple. The holy place was Shiloh. And they would go to Shiloh and offer sacrifice, and Hannah would pray that she would become a mother. And one year, old Eli, the priest, getting along in years, heard her crying, weeping, sobbing to the Lord, thought she was drunk. 
and told her she'd have to move along now. She said, please, sir, I'm just trying to ask the Lord to give me a baby. And he said, well, he's heard your prayer. You will become a mother. And she conceived. Now, Dr. Walter Brueggemann says, pay close attention to places in the Bible where something out of the ordinary takes place. Abraham and Sarah were old, about 100 years old, the Bible says, had never had a child. When God asked if they would like to be parents, they said they would. And that child born to them, Isaac, would found a new nation. When a young woman who's not yet been sexually with a man conceives a child, something dramatic and unusual is taking place. So in Hannah's time, a woman who had not had a baby for years and years suddenly is about to have a baby. Something special is happening. Every baby, every little girl born, every little boy born is something special about to take place. Something special can take place. Dr. Richard Mu'au describes his seminary days when he was working so hard to get through graduate school needed the money that he could get by working. Best job he could find that meshed fairly well with his seminary classes was inspecting rearview mirrors about to be installed in new automobiles. Uh, this was a long time ago. And he describes these mirrors that some had little flaws in them, and flaws which could be very dangerous, of course, if placed in a car and someone was depending on the accuracy of that mirror. So the job was described to him as this. You will spend 50 minutes of every hour inspecting as carefully as you can as many rearview mirrors as you can. And then you take a 10-minute break. Your eyes need to rest from looking at mirrors, and you take a 10-minute break, and then you inspect more mirrors. Well, he said, I was in graduate school. I needed to be studying as much as I possibly could, so I would always take a couple of books with me. I would inspect mirrors for 50 minutes, and then I would read for 10 minutes from my books. That worked pretty well, except when the night watchman at the plant would come around. Jed had nobody else to talk to, and he wanted to talk to me. I just wanted him to go away. I had too much to do, too much reading to do. This was heavy stuff I was reading. I needed to concentrate. And so I would just try to ignore him, pretend I didn't hear him. And one night, in one of my 10-minute breaks, there was Jed, the night watchman, who said to me, well, you must really love those books, almost as much as Ernie loved his. And Dr. Mao asked, uh, Ernie who? And he said, why, Ernie Hemingway, of course. And suddenly he said, Ernie Hemingway? You knew Ernie Hemingway? And the night watchman said, well, of course I did. Before I was a night watchman, I was a hunting guide. I worked for a very wealthy physician who owned a lot of acreage north of here. Uh, Ernest Hemingway had heard about this physician, somehow made connection. He got permission to hunt on the land. I was to be his guide. Why, I've shared a two-man tent with him any number of times, and he'd always pack along a book or two. And when I'm trying to sleep, he's reading by flashlight. And Dr. Mao said, suddenly, what I'd been reading in my book said to me, you've never thought Jed was important until you've discovered he's somehow related to Ernest Hemingway. And suddenly he's become important to you. You're more interested in what he has to say. Well, guess what? Every person you meet is related to the Almighty. 
every person you meet is someone for whom our Lord Jesus was willing to die. Every person you meet is someone for whom God was willing to raise his son from the dead. God is at work here. That's what this writer wants you to know. Number two, this child is blessed because he has a mother who loves him. You say, don't we always talk about mother's love? Yes. Read your newspapers carefully. Watch the six o'clock and ten o'clock news and see how many mothers are not getting it done very well. Not all mothers are terrific mothers. Some mothers are wonderful mothers. Samuel had one of those. A mother who wanted him so desperately, but who also believed that he was a very gift from God to her and that she should take him back to Shiloh. When he was old enough to be weaned, the Bible doesn't say any more specifically than that. When he was old enough to be weaned, she took him back to Shiloh and said to Eli, here's my son. God gave him to me. I'm bringing him back to God. And this little fellow was dressed in an ephod on his chest and a little robe. And every year she would spend time making him a new robe and bring it back to him. One of the scholars I read this week said, well, of course, little boys grow. And they would outgrow robes. They need longer sleeves, longer in the body. So every year Hannah made him a new little robe, brought it to him when it was the time of sacrifice, and put it on him, a mother who loved him. A loving mother so important. Author Caliandro has written about the death of his mother. His father had predeceased her. Now his mother was gone. She lived in an island just off the coast of Maine, and he went up for the funeral, of course. But then he had to pull together some of his mother's business, her house, and so on after the funeral. And a group of her buddies came over. And he said these women wanted to talk about his mother and tell him how wonderful his mother was. Said one woman said to me, last winter I had the worst flu I've ever had in my life. I thought I was going to die. And in fact, he said, your mother called and asked, may I bring you some soup? I said, that sounds wonderful. But do you know what? She didn't bring the soup already made. She brought all the ingredients, which gave her a good excuse to spend nearly half a day with me, bringing me a drink of water, bathing my brow. As she cooked, it made the whole house smell wonderful, she said. When I sniffed it, it sort of cleaned my sinuses, sort of cleared my breathing, and it tasted so wonderful. Your mother spent half a day with me making soup for me. She was terrific. An author said, I know. I know she was. Do you recognize his name? Author Caliandro. Uh, his mother took him to church. He heard the call of God to be a minister. And when Dr. Norman Vincent Peale retired after all those years at Marble Collegiate Church in New York City, the church chose as his successor, author Caliandro. He had a mother who loved him. Number three, I hope in this story you feel some sympathy for Eli. Remember his problem? Eli was a priest of the Lord, and this is what it says. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priest. It goes on in greater detail to tell you what they did that was so wrong. Uh, they abused the gifts that people were bringing. Uh, they were supposed to wait and take a modest portion as the priest part of the sacrifice. Instead, they didn't wait for the fatter parts that would 
waft up some wonderful smell to the Lord. They were picking out the best pieces. And furthermore, they were having sex with the women who worked at the sanctuary. And it goes on. Now, Eli heard all that his sons were doing, and he said to them, Why do you do such things? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Later this week, I will be hosting uh, some pastors from some of our largest Methodist churches in the United States. Uh, we will be gathering at uh, a nearby hotel here for, for uh, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, this group has been meeting now for 35 years. I'm the only one still left of the first group. They've all died, been elected bishops, uh, retired, whatever. And so now it's a younger group by and large. They're, they're three or four as old as I am. But 35 years the group has been gathering. And the first thing we do every year is to start round the table and say, before you tell me what your church has done or didn't do, how much money you raised or didn't raise, are you willing to tell me about yourself? How are you doing? You don't have to, but you may share in this group. We will not tell others what any individual person said. Thirty-five years they've been doing this. That very first year I went, I was so young at that point, and our three children were young, and, and Gail and I had just about everything going our way back at that point. And I sat there and listened to them go around the table. It was unbelievable. One man's son was in a federal prison. Uh, one man's wife uh, was dying of a brain tumor. And another man's wife had had a sudden uh, uh, cardiac arrest and had not gotten oxygen to her brain soon enough. And now she was just vegetating in a hospital room in one of the cities. Everybody around that table had a heartbreaking experience. I flew home when it was over and said to Gail, Gail, all of these men have such heartbreaking decisions, if it can, uh, circumstances. If it could happen to them, it could happen to us. I remember one man one year saying, my wife and I have four children. Our first one is terrific. Our second is wonderful. Our fourth, what a joy. But our third one has gone berserk. We've done everything we know to do. We've sought help from the best people we know. And he does nothing we've asked him and everything we've told him that would hurt him. Can you have a little sympathy here for Eli, a good man whose sons are not doing the right things? Last week I had another birthday. Our two sons, their families are sweet grandchildren took Gail and me to lunch uh, to celebrate my birthday. I was sitting between the two sons-in-law, uh, grandsons, I mean Parker and Josh. And as we were sitting there, I, I pointed out in the restaurant this beautiful replicas of the terracotta figures uh, from Qian, China. Uh, Gail and Jason and I have seen these terracotta figures, as have some of you. You may recall that they were unearthed in 1974. A group of farmers were digging a water well. Now, Qian is one of the least progressive parts of China. And if you go 20, 25 miles outside of Qian, uh, people were still harvesting grain with little burros and, and gathering up the, and, and, and sheaves and carrying them on their backs. Uh, these farmers were digging a water well, and they discovered a terracotta head. Uh, it looked like the head of an army officer. 
Other little bits of terracotta had been found in past years, but this group decided maybe this was significant, and they notified the government officials who came and had others start digging. And they discovered that this was a terracotta figure, life-size, of a Chinese infantryman, but in, he wasn't buried lying down. He was buried standing up at attention. And so they continued to dig and in time unearthed almost 8,000 of these terracotta soldiers no two of them exactly the same. And they had real weapons when they were first put into the ground. I mean, real swords not made of terracotta. Uh, real knives uh, on their belts not made of terracotta. Almost 8,000 of them. And when they started trying to figure out where they'd come from and what they were doing, they discovered they'd been in the ground 2,220 years. That a little boy king emperor, 13 years old, had come to the throne because his father and mother loved him and designated him as heir apparent. Both of them had died, and at 13, he became king. Their deaths had so traumatized him that that's what he focused on was his coming death, and he spent all those thousands upon thousands of dollars and thousands upon thousands of men hours to create an army of almost 8,000 terracotta figures to protect him to protect him instead of taking care of the poor the hungry the illiterate he made terracotta figures and more terracotta figures but history shows that within four years after he died nobody in China remembered him or anything about the terracotta figures where they were what they meant only 2220 years later were they unearthed and then people started trying to figure out who was he and what did he do and so some mothers, sons, and daughters do really well, and some mother and father's sons and daughters do not do so well. So while you're thanking God for Hannah, have a little sympathy for Eli, if you would. Number four, God said to Eli, your sons are scoundrels. They're degenerates. I'm going to kill them both on the same day. And when I do, I'm going to rise up. I'm going to raise up another priest, a high priest, who will do what is in my heart and in my will. Samuel would become that priest. But even Samuel didn't get it right every time. And so in the centuries that followed, people began to think of another priest. There must be someone yet to come. As David had, would finally become a pretty good king, and Solomon a fairly good king, and Rehoboam a not such good king, and they went downhill from there, Surely God will one day send the king who gets it right. When I was in seminary, they asked us questions like, what does it mean to say that Jesus was prophet, priest, and king? But if, in fact, he was all three of those, it wasn't what people were expecting, not what they were expecting. Some of you know that Elizabeth Sherrill is one of my favorite devotional writers. She must be near 90 now. I've been reading her writings a long time. But a couple of years ago, she decided to write a spiritual autobiography that she called All the Way to Heaven. And she retold some of the stories that I'd read through the years, but in greater detail. You may recall from having heard me talk about her or reading on your own that Elizabeth Sherrill's degrees were in, in English and literature, she got a job after she and John were married. They both got jobs with Guidepost magazine. 
Uh, Elizabeth wasn't a Christian. Uh, she wasn't a Christian. She just had not grown up in the church, had not ever been a part of the church, had never made a profession of faith in Christ. She's working for Guidepost magazine. Her husband, John, was the son of a seminary professor. His father was a blind professor of homiletics, preaching, at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, Dr. Tankersley's alma mater, long before Tankersley was there. But Dr. Sherrill was professor of preaching at Union Theological Seminary, but John didn't go to church, and he and Elizabeth didn't talk about church. They were editing the writings of other people for Guidepost magazine, often very dramatic encounters that people had had with God, miraculous healings and so on. But Elizabeth said, those stories were not my story, and they didn't speak to me personally. And then in her autobiography, she, she remembers 50 years ago, 1957, she and John had gone to a Salvation Army fundraising dinner there in New York City. And when it was over and they walked out of the hotel, they discovered that it was really snowing. They lived 40 miles north of the city, and so they started driving through this blinding snowstorm trying to get home. And when they got to the edges <coughs> of the city in 1957, she said, John, we're going to have to stop and call the babysitter because there's no way we're going to make it home as quickly as we told her. She was an older retired woman. And he said, we saw a service station, and John got out to call. Sun still, snow still coming down. And she said he seemed to be gone an extra long time and finally came out of the service station. He got within three or four feet of the car and he just stood there with the snow falling all over him. And she rolled down the window and said, what happened, John? Did you not get through? And he said, I got through. She had had a call from my mother. Dad died at 7.30. And Elizabeth said, died? Died? We just saw him a few days ago. He said, I know. Tonight they decided to walk down the street from their apartment to eat dinner. And then they walked back. Uh, they were getting warm after walking in the snow. Uh, Mom said she'd fix him a cup of hot chocolate. He said that sounded good. He got out his Braille Bible and started to read. When she came back in with the hot chocolate, she thought he had just dozed off. And he was gone. Elizabeth said, we need to call the babysitter and ask her if she can spend the night with our kids. We need to go to your mother. And so they drove back into the city. One o'clock in the morning, they finally gotten back through all of that snow into the apartment. She said the Sherrills were not hugging kind of people. They expressed everything so wonderfully well in words. But that night, John's mother couldn't seem to say anything much. And John said nothing. And finally, she handed me a nightgown and said... We need to go to bed because we'll have much to do tomorrow, many decisions to make. And we went to bed. And the next morning, I heard a shriek about 6 o'clock. I jumped out of bed. It was John's mother. I rushed in there, and she said, I think I'm losing my mind. I was making coffee for us and tiptoeing so I wouldn't wake him up. Elizabeth says, I remember when the little clock in the apartment chimed 7 o'clock. There was a knock at their door. And when I opened it, she said, Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr was standing there one of the professors of Union Theological Seminary. Reinhold Niebuhr could write 800 pages about the nature and destiny of man. He could pin that beautiful translation of an old German prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Ah, yes, she said, here's a man who can say what we need to hear. 
and he came in and sat down. Just four of us, John's mother, John, Dr. Niebuhr, and I. Four of us sitting there. She said, we were sitting just so I could see that clock right over his shoulder, and the second hen went all the way around, and he said nothing. It went around again, and he had said nothing. He reached out his hands toward John's mother. I noticed how gnarled they were with arthritis, and he said, well, Helen. And then he said nothing else. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. The little clock chimed, 7.15. He had not said a word. Not one was saying a word. 7.20, 7.25, the little clock chimes 7.30. And he stood up and let himself out. He had said nothing else. But I had felt the faith of this great man. I had felt the faith of John's mother. I could even see in John's hurt eyes that he remembered what he'd been taught as a boy. And he trusted what he'd been taught. And two years later, I came to Christ, she said, but not through dramatic stories. I walked through the door of silence into life everlasting. Amen.